the funny thing is you set a net worth milestone. Let's say it's a million dollars. You hit a million dollars. Well, guess what? Now you're like, well, maybe it should be two million. You know, like mm-hmm. you two, you're like, well, maybe it should be four or five. Yeah. And it just keeps going and going and going. But to me, wealth is not just another larger amount of money. It's having the ability to spend time on whatever you want. Welcome to the show, Chris Hutchins. How you doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me. Dude, I'm excited for our conversation today because as many of our listeners know, we love talking about, you know, tactical things around money, wealth building, and you are one of the ultimate optimizers of not just wealth in the personal finance space uh, through your podcast and brand of all the hacks, but... um, you really live this optimization, you know, methodology in all areas of your life, from being a parent to traveling to, you know, marriage. And uh, we love to talk about kind of, you know, not just being a millionaire in your bank account, but in all of the gardens of your life. So I know we're in for uh, a treat today. But for those that don't know Chris Hutchins, and you know, where your journey began, where did this all start for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been talking to my parents a lot, trying to figure out the true origin story. Because I feel like I, I don't, I don't know it as well as I should. I mean, obviously, I know where I grew up and all that stuff. I don't know where the like spark of entrepreneurship came uh, in my journey. I do. There are all these great examples. You know, we all have like our lemonade stands and that kind of stuff. For me, right. I went to boarding school, and all the other kids had more money than I did, and their parents gave them unlimited money. So I remember a, an early story was. I just, everyone was always ordering pizza at night. And I was like, I want pizza. You know, like what what high school kid doesn't want to eat more pizza? But I didn't have the money to order a Domino's pizza. So I would just start ordering it and then selling six of this eight slices to other people and then eating the other two. So it's kind of like, I think my attitude has always been, if someone says, oh, you don't have enough to do X, I'm like, well, maybe there's another way to do it. So I didn't have the money to buy the pizza, but I had enough money to buy one pizza and I could sell, you know, three quarters of it and then make enough money to buy a pizza the next night. And, you know, and I'm not sure that optimization was the best for my long-term health, but for my high school metabolism, it was fine. <laughs> yeah, right. And so that began your first aha light bulb moment of, I can, you know, generate an ROI on this strategy of hacking pizza. What yeah. can this apply to next? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I as we're talking, I'm like, oh, you know, I wanted to go to all these concerts as a kid and I didn't want to buy tickets. So I made up like a fake magazine and I like gave it to people. Like it wasn't not real. It just didn't have a wide syndication. But at the time, there wasn't enough stuff on the internet to validate whether this magazine was as legitimate as, you know, maybe I had implied that it could have been. So uh, I think it's always just been, if there's something I want to do, let's get creative. Let's think outside of the box and let's find out whether there's a way to do it, to start a business around it, to, you know, do something. And so you know, out of high school, I wanted to, you know, I went to college, I'm college, I did all these different extracurriculars, just trying to like test my, you know, tip my toes in the water of student government and running, you know, being in fraternity and all this stuff. When I graduated, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Because I don't know, I just never really thought about it. I probably should have been more prepared. Uh, But everyone said, go get a job in investment banking, management consulting, those are the best jobs out there. And I went to Colorado State, it was by no means on the recruiting circuit for any of the investment banks or management consulting firms. So I was like, I got to get creative. I just tracked down like every person that I'd ever met, the dean of the College of Business, people that had spoken to our classes, been like, is there any way you can make an introduction? Um, And ended up getting a job in these two industries. I actually got both. 
And I wasn't sure which one to take, but one of them started six months after graduation. One started right away. So I just accepted both and figured six months in, if I don't like the first one, I could just quit and take the second one, which ended up happening. So, uh, but everything changed about a year and a half after graduation when I went to this event called Startup Weekend. And it was a bunch of engineers, designers, entrepreneurs, you know, marketing people, everyone just came together to some kind of like office building over the weekend. And we just built companies. And none of the companies that were being built back in 2008 or seven, like survived, right? We made a Windows app that would remind you to stretch throughout the day, doesn't exist. But I was like, oh my God, you could build a company on the internet a weekend. Like, what am I doing working at this company that's like, I'm just another random person in a giant organization working with other giant organizations, trying to help them improve 1% of something they're doing. I got to do this. And I just remember asking people, I was like, how do I do this for a living? They're like, well, you got to go to San Francisco. Like, all that's where all the companies are doing this. And I immediately asked my company if they would transfer me. I'm not sure whether they knew this in advance, but they were very, very amenable to transferring me to San Francisco. And then about a week or two after moving there, they laid me off. Um, but they did pay for the move. And I ended up in San Francisco. And I don't know, for the next decade, it was just like all in on entrepreneurship, Silicon Valley, startup life, building internet companies, selling them, you know, investing in them and everything else. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like build and bigger pipeline with real customers leading to higher win rates and conversions, and of course, larger deals and paydays all around. We call this Deep Sales, and LinkedIn has built the first Deep Sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Right now, our Millionaire Mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast. That's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started. So talk a little bit about that. You know, obviously the the vision became clear of what path you wanted to go down, but obviously many different forks in the road, especially in Silicon Valley, right? So many different rabbit holes that you can get distracted by and, you know, find yourself walking down that sometimes lead into, you know, an abyss of nothing, but also, you know, it's a massive opportunity. And what was the first opportunity and stepping stone that you know, kind of led you to really taking an idea to inception to real business through an exit, being that you've had two of those now? Yeah, I'll tell the first one, which had no exit and no revenue. But uh, when I landed, I got laid off. And I was like, hmm, I live in a city. I don't know anyone. I just got laid off. And so I don't have a job. Fortunately, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, had moved out about a month early, gotten a job. So I was like, we at least have someone that can Ooh, pay, pay for rent. income. <laughs> I know. And at the time, no joke, I didn't know anyone in San Francisco except my middle school English teacher. 
So I reached out to him. He was like the coolest teacher ever. He was like the guy that was like skateboarding in the parking lot during school, during lunch. And I was like, this guy's cool. I kind of kept up with him. I was like, we're coming out. He's like, why don't you live? We have an extra room. Why don't you guys stay? So we were living with my high school English teacher. My wife had just gotten a job. Um, and I was like, well, what do I do? And I had been exposed to these like unconferences that were going on where people would just like make an event and you'd go and you'd create an agenda. And I was like, God, everybody's getting laid off. What if we created a conference for people that are non-traditionally employed, whether you were looking for a job, whether you were trying to start a company, learn to freelance, what would that look like? And I guess it was the right place, right time for the zeitgeist of the media. And so starting something uh, called Laid Off Camp just kind of took the internet and the media by storm. And we ended up doing 20 events around the country, made no money. Um, But I think it's an important lesson, which is I put myself out there and I built an amazing network because all the companies that were hiring right now were high growth internet companies. You know, a lot of the people that had gotten laid off in a major financial crisis are not horrible employees. They just, the company decided we don't need this function. We don't need this mm-hmm. division. So I met some amazing people, uh, met some amazing companies, ended up getting some freelance work. And that kind of helped very, very quickly build my network in a city that I knew almost no one. Uh, and then I decided. You know, I'll, I'll save an interlude for later where my wife and I said, well, right now we don't have any jobs, so let's travel for a bit. Uh, and we basically burned through all of our savings. But I, I came back and I decided I want to work at one of the coolest companies. And instead of saying, let's send a resume to 50 companies, I said, I'm going to find the company that I think has the biggest opportunity for learning and you know, reputation building and everything. And I'm going to get a job at that company. So I didn't... you know. I only said I only applied for one company. I didn't even really apply. I just tried to convince someone who knew someone that worked there to let me give them a presentation I had made about their company and their industry and why I thought there was a lot of opportunity. Later, many years later, I went back and looked at that presentation. It was awful. Like there wasn't a <laughs> bit of insight in that presentation that anyone would have gotten value out of. It was like, let's Chris show off his PowerPoint skills and making charts and infographics that did nothing. However, I did think it showed that I was really excited about this company. Like most people don't pitch companies on why they should work for, why they should hire you with presentations of data and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So once I started building that kind of brand of, okay, I'm a guy that's going to come to a company. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get a job. And then when I'm there, I'm going to do whatever it takes to help make the company successful. Uh, You know, people leave companies, they go other places. They start to be like, oh, this guy... And so another guy was looking to start a company and he was trying to find someone that could kind of do all of that because he started a few successful companies in the past and he wanted, you know, he was like, I don't necessarily want to be the guy that grinds all day. And I was like, I want to be that person. You know, I want to grind. And so, you know, I joined the founding team of a startup incubator. And for about a year, we tried rapidly creating different business ideas, trying to make something work. We had a few things that kind of work, um, but we had a really strong team. And when we realized things weren't working, we kind of had a crossroads to say, what do we want to do? Do we want to keep going? Or do we want to take this awesome team we've built and see if there's a place that it could be more valuable? And so we just kind of cold reached out to Google. And we were like, hey, we got this awesome team. You guys are working on hard problems. They're kind of in the same space as what we're working on. We don't think ours are working. We think yours might. Maybe we could just... You guys could just hire us all and buy the company. And so that was kind of the first outcome was... It was only a year into the company, but we kind of realized... We weren't going to fulfill the vision we had set out to fulfill. So what's the next best alternative we could fulfill? And this I don't was, know, that was a lot. <laughs> this was Milk, yeah? Yeah, this was a company called Milk. It was kind of a startup incubator where we're like, let's come up with an idea, prototype it, see if it works, see if it sticks, and keep going. 
I, I now think that's a terrible idea. I don't think anyone should start a company that's an incubator because starting a company is so hard. And if you aren't so passionate about the thing you're doing, you are never going to make it work. Obviously, there are people who get lucky. But I think to increase your success opportunity and likelihood, you really have to go all in and believe in this vision. And when you start an incubator, you're kind of inherently not going all in on anything. You're like, let's try this. If it doesn't work, we'll move on. But most companies, if you go back to the origin story of everything from Instagram to Airbnb to all these massive companies, the first thing they started didn't work. And they like pivoted and they pivoted and they tried new things. And when they got traction, they doubled down on that traction. And so if you don't have a thing that you believe in, it maybe doesn't have to be the idea. Maybe it's the change you want to bring to an industry. Maybe it's the way you want to affect people's lives. But if you don't have a thing that you're all in on, I'm, I think more likely than not, it's going to fall apart because it's just hard. And when it's hard, if you have this next thing to run onto, you might just make that move. But if you're all in, uh, you're going to keep trying. Yeah, there's been so many times along my entrepreneurial journey that I've literally wanted to quit and give up, right? But when you're really committed to that North Star and that mission and that vision, you know, there, there's something else that's pulling you beyond the obstacles mentally and physically that are challenges, right? And I think about all the times that, you know, I wanted to give up and I didn't, I would have never, you know, bought my commercial plazas. I would have never bought my first hotel. I would have never bought my second hotel, my third hotel, right? Building my fourth hotel. It's so it's one of those things where if you're not committed, you have to be almost a glutton for punishment when it comes to building a business, right? But that also is what brings out all of these characteristics and qualities and really weaponizes you to get to that next level, normalize it, get to that next level, normalize it. So as you sold your company, what did you do next after that? I mean, that's oftentimes where people feel lost, right? Like that was not part of my identity. You know, you found a way to use that as a stepping stone for the next success. What was the hack for you in taking one great success and turn it into two? Yeah, so when we sold the company to Google, unfortunately, the team we landed on was building a product called Google Plus, which if anyone remembers, it was Google's attempt at a social Mm -hmm. network to compete with Facebook. If you don't remember, well, that was the problem. Uh, It didn't work. (laughs) And there were over a thousand people working on that problem. And so because we joined an area and a team that didn't end up working out, we had to find a new opportunity. And I thought, gosh, I don't know if I'm ready to go start another company, but I'm really passionate about meeting people in this industry. And I was going to all the events, meeting all the founders at every area of you know this San Francisco and what was going on. And so I'd gone over to Google Ventures, which was Google's venture capital firm, and now now called GV. And I said, hey, you know, we raised a little bit of money from you guys. You guys must know a lot of people at Google. What can we do? Like, I'm passionate about trying to take the next few years at Google and, and learn as much as I can. And they were like, well, you seem to be like in the mix. And we don't have anyone on our team that's in the mix. And your co-founder, Kevin, like he's been a really successful angel investor. And you know, we don't really have someone that's kind of fits that persona of founder, seed investor, early stage investor. Why don't you guys just come here? And so managed to spend the next three years working at GV, just trying to go all in on early stage investing, which was, you know, the best way to train for, you know, what does it take to succeed? What is hard? What do you, you know, how do you optimize every aspect of building a company? So that ultimately, three years later, when I started my next company, I felt like I had infinite wisdom compared to when I was first going. Like I didn't, it's just crazy how little I knew 
And, and that just keeps happening, right? And I'm very yep. open about that. Like yeah. now I'm like, gosh, if I did it again, gosh, what I would do differently. Um, what would you do differently? I think it's so easy when you... So the next company, Grove, was an online financial planning firm that the idea was most financial advisors spend all this time collecting paperwork, filling out documents, having in-person meetings that it's so inefficient, which is why it costs so much money. Mm. And if you just built software, but didn't try to replace the human advisors, um, you could make everything more affordable. And then all these people who are stressed out about money could, could have an answer. What I, I think in some, to- some cases, when you start a company, you could be so all in on the idea that you don't test the most fundamental things that matter. So we tested whether the product worked and people loved it, but we didn't test whether at scale, we could actually bring people in the door to sign up and use the service without having to spend obscene amounts of money marketing to them. And that was because you know we hit scaling problems early on, right? We needed people. So we couldn't service a million people because we yep. were a human software hybrid product. But what we could have done, and we tried it at a little scale. We were like, when we had one financial advisor, we could probably serve 50 clients. So we signed up 250 clients and we put them on a wait list and we said, we'll get to you. As soon as we had 250 clients, we were like, we got to go hire advisors. But I don't think I thought as big as I needed to. And it was like, finally, we got to 1,000 clients. It was like getting from 1,000 to 10,000, the whole thing broke. Mm -hmm. And I probably could have said, okay, well, if we need to get to 10,000 clients and we need to get to them in a year or two, then that means we need to be bringing on, like, let's call it 1,000 people in a month or two. Okay, well, if we need to bring a thousand people in a month or two, then that means we need to find a way to bring in like a hundred people in three or four days. Okay, so I could have tested bringing in a hundred people in three or four days and found out that that would have cost so much money that you know it would have taken us decades to pay off the amount we spent to acquire those customers. And so ultimately, at one point, we literally just made the product free to see if that could make the cost of acquiring customers less expensive. And people just the process of financial planning is just so burdensome, collecting all this information, talking mm-hmm. about it. It's never a priority. And so because financial planning is not top of mind, it's not you know a problem you need to tackle today, it was just never going to be cheap enough to acquire customers and to make up for the cost of having humans involved. And I think what we ultimately learned was we thought software without humans might be a more efficient way to do this at scale. And at the exact same time, I'd, I'd met uh, the founder of Wealthfront and he was trying to build out that vision. And we still had $4 million in the bank. But my co-founder and I looked at each other and said, this model's not going to work. So do we want to spin down to nothing, take $4 million and go build a new company? And my advice to founders for years had been, never start a company because you want to start a company. Like You have to have an idea you're so passionate about. So it's like, we have $4 million, we have a team, but we don't have a thing we're passionate about. I would be going against everything I'd ever told anyone by taking that path. So we ended up just saying... Let's just give the money back to our investors and go join Wealthfront and go uh, you know, try to build an automated version of what we were doing. And that's what we did. However, we actually ended up telling our investors, hey, we're going on this mission. And they said, hey, don't give us your money back. Like, Let's just bring it over. To, like, Can we just invest it in Wealthfront also? Because if you're going to go work on that vision, we want to be a part of it. Uh, and so you know, I would say everyone got great stock offers, but you know, I didn't make and no money deposited in my account other than my regular paycheck. But you know, since then, Wealthfront has been a you know there's at least an acquisition with UBS that's in the works. So um, you know, hopefully that'll if that if and when that all closes, that'll be uh, you know a finally a payoff for all the hard work for I don't know the last almost decade. Dude, that's amazing. And 
from your perspective, you know, being that I find every kind of season has so many great lessons and so many great opportunities and so many great relationships and some stick, right? And some, you know, fade. What is the next level and version of your wealth building journey look like to you? Is it something that you're consistently planning and thinking about and for, or is it something that you just organically allow to happen based on the fact that you know fundamentally you're doing the right things along the way? I think I've taken a few steps in this journey. So early on, um, it was like, let's try to save up enough money that you know we could buy a house. We, we could do a thing. And so it was really like we had this milestone and we kept setting like net worth milestones. And in the last few years, I think I've kind of turned away from that idea and said, you know what? Like, the funny thing is, you set a net worth milestone. Let's say it's a million dollars. You hit a million dollars. Well, guess what? Now you're like, well, maybe it should be two million. You know, like mm-hmm. you two. You're like, well, maybe it should be four or five. Yeah. And it just keeps going and going and going. But to me, wealth is not just another not another larger amount of money. It's having the ability to spend time on whatever you want. And the funny thing about the way most creative, you know, passionate people spend their time is that it often ends up, not always, but often ends up turning into some sort of enterprise that you know generates income. And so the number of dollars you need in the financial independence movement uh, or, or FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early, people often say, okay, well, there's this rule that has come out of a lot of research at Trinity that says if you, you, know, you can make 4% on your savings. And so as long as you have enough money that you can live off 4%, you can stop working and you're good for the rest of your life. I don't want to argue the math, right? Like no one really knows what kind of returns we'll see in the market forever. But there's a lot of data that went into that research. But it often means if you need to live on a certain amount of money, you got to work a long time. Mm. And most people don't retire at 40 or 50 and they just never do anything. There are probably some people listening that are like, you know what? I actually just would like to sit on a beach and read books for the rest of my life. But I imagine most of the people here, if they had all the time in the world, there's some business idea they have or project they're excited about that they would go tackle. And most of them would end up generating income on it. So I'm not a big fan of trying to save up enough money that you never have to work again because almost everyone I know that's done that ends up being in a place where they now are generating income and they're like, gosh, I could have done this three, four, five, ten 10 years earlier. So wealth to me is having enough money that you can try to go test the waters without feeling strapped, without feeling stressed, without putting your family or your health or any of these things at risk. Um, And once you're there, it's not about having more money. It's about finding more fulfilling ways to spend your time. And sometimes that's spending more time with your family. Sometimes that's chasing down an idea. For me, it was starting a podcast and like going all in on it. Um, But that means I'm like the wealthiest person ever because I love doing what I'm doing. And I don't spend a lot of time doing things I don't love doing. I I won't pretend that there's nothing that, you know, these right. people that say, I never want to do anything I don't want to do. Like, life's just not like that, right? Yeah. Like, I didn't well, want to take my car to get fixed, but like it broke. So like, I got to get it fixed. Yeah, I think too, that that duality, right? Of like, I love doing these things and I don't like doing these things creates that paradigm and perspective of appreciation and, and purpose and, and, you know, diligence around architecting the lifestyle design that you want without that duality, you don't really have any perspective on it. So I think it's important to sometimes do the things that you don't necessarily want to do, but are maybe required to get you to do more of the things that you do want to be doing, you know, more frequently. One of the 
conversations I was having with a mentor a while ago was, um, you know, this kind of journey around wealth building, right? And like, once you unlock that kind of financial independence, you unlock that time freedom. Once you unlock that time freedom, for most people, how they want to spend their time is really either investing in the relationships, the people, the experiences, right? More of life with people that they love. And then the other kind of parallel to that is, you know, once you have the time freedom to invest in your relationships, it's also this impact, right? It's this purpose, it's this passion. And without really unlocking that financial independence and that income tier, you're always, you know, stuck in this, this hamster wheel, right? The rat race that so many people find themselves stuck in. And so you have had countless conversations with really smart, successful, wealthy people, those that have unlocked independent, independent, you know, um, from their finances. What are some of the misconceptions around personal finance on this path to, you know, financial independence that many people have subscribed to that maybe they should revisit and or let go? I think one of the biggest ones that comes to mind, I did an episode of my show with Nick Majuli, who is a financial, works at Ritholtz Wealth Management, has thought about this, just wrote a book called Just Keep Buying. And he pointed out this really funny thing where he was talking about earlier in his career, he was really obsessed with figuring out how to optimize his investments. Because you know, you hear everything, invest early, compound interest, all this stuff matters. And he was like, but if you actually did the math, I probably had $10,000, right? And if I were the best investor ever, long term, I you know maybe I'd get ten percent a year. You know that's like Warren Buffett level craziness, uh, which means that my ten thousand dollars is going to make a thousand dollars a year, and that's like eight hundred dollars a or a thousand eighty dollars a month. It's mm-hmm. not even eight hundred eighty dollars a month. And so he processes. He's like, I'm spending all this time right now trying to like figure out what's the right investment portfolio, what's the right tactic, what am I doing, but like. If I go out to dinner with my friends and spend $80, I just ate all the returns that like I would have gotten if I had the per- <laughs> like the best invested portfolio. Yeah. So earlier in your career, people say it's important to invest and I'm not going to disagree, but I don't know how important it is to really nail like all the nuance. If you have $100 million and your portfolio is going to earn 7, 8, 10%, like those differences are wildly important. But the point at which the amount you're saving each month is greater than the amount of your portfolio return each month, you're probably better off spending time thinking about spending and saving and earning than you are thinking about your asset allocation. Mm-hmm. So people hit this point where they're like, wow, I'm, I'm putting away $1,000 a month savings, but my portfolio is now generating, you know, not necessarily dividends and stuff, but just gains. Your portfolio is going up by $5,000 a month. You're like, wow, I should be spending more time on my investing than on trying to cut a few dollars here and there. But for most of us in our 20s and 30s even, we probably are having a bigger impact on our future net worth by the amount we earn and save than by our asset allocation. So Mm. by all means, I'm a huge fan of going to read about this stuff, understand modern portfolio theory, create a portfolio. It's just like going down to the, you know, reading 50 books and tweaking it every day and all that stuff. I'm just not sure earlier on in your career, it matters as much. But I think people talk about it like it does. Like the investment choices you make are the biggest ones. The biggest choice you can make is if you started a side hustle and you start making an extra $1,000 a month, that's probably going to have a way outsized impact on your future net worth. Um, Or or just uh, evaluate some spending you're doing and and cut back on it. It'll have a big impact. That's one big one. 
Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast and trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. With all of the conversations that you have, what have been some of the best side hustles you wish you would have known about when you were first starting in your journey for the young beginner that's just starting out? Yeah, so I did an episode, I wish I remembered all the numbers, with Nick Loper, uh, who runs a site called Side Hustle Nation. And so we just went through like, what are the best side hustles? And then I did another recent one and talked a little bit about side hustles with a woman named Jen Glantz. So first off, Jen Glantz has the craziest side hustle in the world and turned it into her, her entire business. But she Which ran is what? A, uh, yeah. So she, a friend of hers told her she was like a great bridesmaid once. And she was like, I really like doing this. And so she put an ad in Craigslist and said, if you need a bridesmaid, I'll be your bridesmaid. Um, and now she's probably done 500 weddings. She's a bridesmaid for hire. Uh, she's what? turned this into a massive company, run, has written books, runs a podcast, like has done this, has bridesmaids that work for her, that go to weddings uh, on her, you know, when she can't. And so she turned this like little idea of a friend telling her she's really good at a thing. And the thing, you know, for her, it was not, she was organized. She was there. She was really good at advocating for someone. You know, sometimes you have a person that you call and tell them about, oh, I'm really struggling with this. And they try to fix it versus be your advocate. It's like, she was really good at being someone's advocate or just running off and fixing it without getting that person involved in the stress. And so her friends were like, God, you're just so good at being a bridesmaid. And she was like, maybe there are people that want this. Not necessarily because they don't have friends, but because their friends are not the kind of people that you want like running point on your biggest day and supporting uh -huh. you. And she's built, I don't, I don't want to say a multi-million dollar empire, but maybe like all around this side hustle. So that was really cool. A really simple one that, um, you know, maybe it's died down a little now that interest rates are high. But when interest rates drop, something to keep in mind is becoming a notary. It's pretty easy to do. It's not that much work. And I would say if interest rates drop, everyone that's gotten a loan or a mortgage in the period right now where interest rates are high, everyone out there is going to want to refinance. And as soon as everyone wants to refinance, especially in the wake of a pandemic, there's all these people have this idea of, oh, you just have a notary come to your house and sign all these paperwork for your docs. 
So I think that's going to come back roaring again when interest rates drop. And you can make a surprisingly large amount of money being a mobile notary. And most people that need notaries are people who are buying homes. Most people that buy homes have jobs, which means that they're usually looking to sign all these documents after work or on the weekends. So some side hustles take a lot of time during the workday and they compete. This is one that works nights and weekends uh, that I think is pretty cool. That's amazing, man. I'm still in shock over the whole bridesmaid thing. I'm like, I know somebody's going to hear this and go, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to be the, you know, the, the bachelor, uh, you know, buddy or the bachelorette, you know, I have party planned planner, a right? myself. Uh, my side hustle was I planned bachelor parties and I didn't do it for the money, but I did it for the points. So one thing we haven't talked about yet. So like, I'm, a, I'm kind of obsessed with credit card points and miles, but most somewhat because it's a game and I love optimizing things, but also mm-hmm. because I don't have a hundred million dollars. So I'm not going to go, you know, fly in first class on all these vacations and stay at, you know, $5,000 a night hotels, but boy, like they are nice. And like, I, if there is a game you can play to be able to travel the world for free, like, you know, a multimillionaire without having to have multi-millions yet, I'm going to play the game and credit card points and miles are that game. And especially if you have a business and you have expenses, you can run through it. It's even more lucrative. So I played that game really hard. And one of the ways I played it was I found that most people hate organizing group trips. But you know, you're not going to go to your friends when you organize a bachelor party and be like, hey, guys, I'll take on the effort of planning the group trip, but everybody chip in and pay me 150 bucks. Like, that's just like not what you do. Mm-hmm. Most people aren't going to ask their friends to pay them. But the trick was, I would just say, hey, I'll plan all the logistics. I'll get the hotels or the rent the villa and I'll book flights. The only catch is I'm going to put all the flights and I'm going to put all the hotels on my credit card. And you guys are all going to Venmo me money. And everyone's like, dude, that's fine. Like, what's one flight to me? Yeah, no problem. But if I plan 20 people's flights and each flight, let's say, is $400 and I put on a card that earns five points per dollar on airfare, I'm getting 40,000 points right there. Right. And let's say we're renting hotel rooms. Maybe that's another 10, 20,000 points. Every time I planned a bachelor party, I was probably earning 50, 60, 70,000 points. Um, you know, if I open up a card there, you know, right now, United has a United business card, 150,000 mile sign up bonus. So let's open a United business card. Let's go and plan a bachelor party, put all the costs on that card. Now I'm earning, you know, 20, 30,000 points from booking everything. Plus I hit the bonus and I got 150,000 playing this bachelor party just gave me almost 200,000 points, which is like enough to go anywhere in the world with two people and have an amazing time. So I was using these like trips that I was helping people plan not to make money, but to travel the world for free. And so my wife and I have now been to, I don't know, 60 plus countries Almost every time we cross an ocean, we're doing it in a lie flat bed in business class. Like I would never pay for that, right? Yeah. Like I want to do that for free. I was gonna say, I mean, twelve million points. I think most people have seen people talk about opening up this credit card and then you know unlocking the points. And there's so many different strategies that people can use and leverage to travel and enjoy things that necessarily maybe they wouldn't want to spend the money on or couldn't you know spend the money on to enjoy that type of lifestyle beyond, you know, the bachelor party ideas, any other travel hacks that you absolutely subscribe to and suggest people that are looking to, right. 
travel like a multimillionaire without necessarily having that multimillion dollar budget can employ in their own strategy going forward? Yeah, so I've probably done, I don't know, to date, 10, 15 episodes on travel, lots on hacks. A lot of my Q&A episodes dive into a lot of the credit card tactics, travel hacks. So there's a whole archive there. I'm sure somewhere in the show notes, there'll be a link to all that. Yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to link all that up uh, at millionermindcast.com on uh, Chris's episode. So be sure to check that out. Yeah, but I'll leave you with one that I think stands above the rest. And it's so easy and so effective. So on your next trip, book a hotel wherever you're going to book a hotel. I'll caveat, this probably only works if you're booking a hotel that has nicer rooms or maybe has room service at the hotel. Uh, But let's assume you're at a hotel like that. Book the hotel directly with the hotel company. So if you're booking a Marriott hotel, go to Marriott.com. Don't go to Expedia. Don't go to Priceline. Book it with the hotel. And send an email to the hotel saying... And you own hotels, so you can give me your feedback. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Send an email to the hotel and say, hey, I'm coming to stay with you guys. I'm really looking forward to my stay. And you know, if you're celebrating something, let them know. And that's it. And if you don't have an email, if you can't find an email for the hotel, maybe call the front desk and just say, hey, is there an email I can get for a manager or you know, someone on the sales team or just something? The front desk. Send it off. Maybe three, four days before you arrive, follow up again. I think that... I mean, I've got hundreds of emails from people that have gotten a bottle of champagne, an upgraded room, an ocean view, free breakfast, free parking, you know, you name it. Someone has gotten it. One of my listeners got their embroidered pillows with their initials on it, which I thought, I mean, I guess that's a nice touch, but I would have rather taken the bottle of champagne. Yeah, right. But, um, (laughs) and the reason this works is that as much as we might feel like this isn't true, hotels are still in the hospitality game. Mm-hmm. And they want to build relationships with customers. They want to wow them. They want them to come back. They want to build repeat business. And when you book on Orbitz, when you book on Expedia, they don't get the kind of access to you and your information, sometimes yep. even until you check in. They might not yeah. know your email address, anything. So you're, when they know you're booking on Orbitz, they know next time, they're probably not going to be able to wow you because you're going to go somewhere else. But if you take the time to book with them directly... You know, one, they're not giving up the commission to orbit. So they're a little happy about that. Mm-hmm. But they also get to say, oh, let's get to know you. Like, let's get to build a profile of you and, and, and say, next time we can send you a note. Maybe we can remind you about something. And that to them is worth enough to try to make a really strong impression. And, and it's so easy. Like, it doesn't cost you anything to go to Marriott's website versus Priceline's website. The fares are almost, or the prices are almost always exactly the same. Yep. Um, I don't know. What do you think? You're, you're in the industry. Yeah. And uh, you're, 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 you're spot on. I mean, the idea is to own the customer, right? And so if, if they're willing to engage and want to build that relationship and meet you there in the middle, the right business mindset or ownership group is going to look at that as a massive opportunity because that delta on the margin that they'd be given off to, you know, a third party OTA, um, they can reinvest that into the customer, creating a lifelong relationship getting referrals, them posting on Instagram and the organics SEO that comes from that. So many different you know angles that absolutely make sense. And there's a way to create that win-win there. Yeah, so that's one. Um, a fun one, like just to get people in the mind of like hacking things mm-hmm. is you're going usually internationally, but sometimes domestic. If you're going to rent a house, um, I think everyone listening default is let's go to Airbnb. Let's look for a house or a villa. You know, you have kids, I have kids. Like once you have kids, you're like, I don't or two hotel rooms, other rooms yeah. going to be adjoining, and you start looking for something more, more convenient. In a lot of countries, 
Airbnb was not the default place that someone listed their house, but it's now become the place that everyone feels like they have to list the house on because that's where all the international tourists are. Mm-hmm. Airbnb, like most OTAs, takes a cut. Yep. So what I want you to do is I want you to take the image of the hotel, or sorry, of the property, whatever you think is the image that most embodies it, whether it might be outside, might be the shot of the pool, might be the living room, save the image to your computer, go to Google Images and upload the image. And what Google will do is they'll search the internet for that picture. And they might find seven or eight websites that all have that exact picture on it. And I'll tell you that those other seven or eight websites are probably going to be other places you can book that exact same villa or house or condo. And most of those sites are going to have a lower cost and a lower commission than Airbnb. And if you're lucky, you might even find a website, which I've done a couple of times, that's just the owner. The owner has like, you know, purplehouseincabo.com. And you go to the owner's website and there's no commission going anywhere else. And now you've saved yourself 30% on the exact same property. Dude. All the hacks. My man, Chris, has got it going on. And guys, if you want to check out his podcast, which I highly recommend, this is just a little snippet of what you're going to get. Uh, You're putting out how many episodes per week? So it's historically been an episode a week. And about a third of them are this travel points, miles, you know, style conversation, bringing in experts from, you know, the points guy, that kind of stuff. Another third is all about personal finance, wealth, investing, money, everything there, bringing in people who manage money, who grow money, who build alternative assets, that kind of stuff. And then the other third is kind of a grab bag. Like this whole show is my goal is talking to people where I can learn as much as I can to optimize and upgrade my life. So it's someone like Jen Glantz, who's built this crazy business from a Craigslist post, Mm -hmm. talking to the head of the American Negotiation Institute about negotiation tactics. Or, you know, we talked earlier about wanting to, you know, live a fulfilling life. I've had on a couple people come to mind Jordan Grummet's a doctor who is a hospice doctor and personal finance kind of blogger that's met people on their deathbed for years and talked to them about what changes they would make. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you, none of those changes where they wish they saved more money, like they yeah. weren't thinking about it. Yeah. So I've done a handful of episodes uh, about regret and what that means and kindness and happiness and how you can infuse that more in your life. So I think there's something for everyone there. Uh, you know, it all comes with this spin of we want to help you, you know, boost your net worth and save money at the same time. But I also want you to travel and be happy and spend time with your kids and your family and build relationships. And so hopefully there's something for everyone every week. And every now and then I do a little bonus episode on Friday if there's just a little bit extra that I wanted to share from the interview that week. So with you consistently looking to grow your wealth, grow your lifestyle, grow your fun, your family. What is it that you personally are focused on optimizing right now? Yeah, so we just had our second child and I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to not give up everything. Look, I I intentionally wanted to have children. My wife and I wanted, like there's so much joy that comes from, you know, right now we're about to take our daughter to Target to get her whatever she wants because she gave up her pacifier, right? Like that's, I'm like excited to go to Target like I never had been in my entire <laughs> life. Um, though, funny enough, right now, when you ask her what she wants, she wants a goat. And I don't think she realizes they don't sell goats at Target yet. So maybe it's going to be a poor experience. Um, but that's a whole new type of joy. But my wife and I love to travel. Like, how do we make sure that we find ways to not give up everything in life? You know, we have some friends that just, they just never go out, they never do anything. Um, I did an episode a couple weeks ago about throwing the best cocktail party. 
and why they're like so much less work and so much more effective at building relationships than dinner parties. But if I had done that episode three years ago, uh, you know, before I even had a podcast, it would have been all about how to throw a fun evening cocktail party. But the spin now is like, how do you do that with kids? Because I want to keep doing it. Like, it's easy to throw a cocktail party when you don't have kids. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, we're gonna do a party at nine o'clock. Like, I can't throw a party at nine o'clock right now. Like, yeah, got two kids to sleep. Yeah. But so it's, it's my biggest optimization now is what are the tweaks you can apply to your life to try to keep living the way you want? And at one point in my life, it was keep living the way you want while running a company. Like, how could you still take a two-week trip to Japan while you're the CEO of a company and not have things fall apart? Now it's how do you still take a two-week trip to Japan while you have two kids and not have everything fall apart? So, you know, we have an au pair. That's like an optimization in my mind because it's a type of childcare, but they're part of the family. So we're going to take our au pair with us. Mm-hmm. Japan's not open. So we had to take that off the table for this year. But wherever we end up going this year, she's going to come with us and we're going to all travel together, which will give us time to go explore this country um, while she's working, but also time to enjoy it through the eyes of our kids. I love it, man. That's amazing. With the world that we live in now around you know, TikTok and Instagram and social media and obviously technology rapidly changing, where do you see some of the greatest opportunities for building wealth for those that are looking to really take advantage of what kind of climate we're currently in? You know, I I wouldn't say I'm the most active person on social media, but I think what's crazy is that if you create something that is great, it has never been easier for that to get out in the world, whether it's a product, whether it's a piece of art, whether it's, you know, a piece of content on social media. Like, imagine how hard it would have been to be a random artist in the middle of nowhere and design something cool and have the whole world see it. Uh, in a matter of hours or days. It's impossible. So I think the greatest opportunities are trying to focus your time and energy on the things you're the most passionate about. Because the downside of having all this is you're now competing with the whole world, right? If you want to create an interesting piece of content that's going to make someone laugh, well, everyone else on the in the world trying to do that is now your competition, which is terrible because that makes it hard. Where it's great though, is that you do the thing you love. Do the thing that you want to spend 10 hours at night researching and spending time on. If that's making a TikTok video to make someone laugh, great. Go all in on making people laugh on TikTok. You've never had a better opportunity to grow. And brands now are really open to being involved and in supporting creators on every medium. Uh, so I think we have this global scale. I think the the other piece of it is, don't forget that it is a global scale. Don't forget that, you know, there might be a product that you're passionate about that's already taken the market by storm in the States, but that doesn't mean that it's taken the market by storm in Canada, in Africa, in like the rest of the world. And so um, if you have a crazy idea, it, it might not work here because it exists, but that doesn't mean it won't work somewhere else. So mm. with the world being our oyster and with social media and technology making it easy to scale almost instantly, like people can instantly have a million people see some video on TikTok. It's crazy. It's I, haven't figured out, I haven't figured out how to get a million people to see anything, but... Uh, you know, that's not my thing. And so I think I keep looking at TikTok and hearing podcasters say, we're making clips for TikTok, we're going. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really passionate about finding people who've dedicated their lives to optimizing one thing so that I can go really deep on it and get like that 80-20 Pareto principle value in my life and talking to them, recording it and sharing it. That's my thing. It's not creating TikTok videos. So like, 
may I one day hire someone to clip the podcast, put it on TikTok so that people on that platform can see it? Yes. But do I think I'm going to find myself sitting at home with a camera recording TikTok? I don't think so. That's not me. So don't do the thing that everyone else is doing because you think you need to do it. Do the thing that you love and the thing that you feel like you can be good at and build mastery in. You know, I think drive is, I think Dan Pink says drive is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Like find something where you can be autonomous, find something where you can build that mastery and that you care about and, and drive on it. And I, I think over time, it's not, it doesn't work overnight, but over time, that adds the most value to the world. And Chris, yourself. This has been a beautiful episode, brother. Have enjoyed the conversation. I know a ton of people are going to want to check out your podcast. They're going to want to follow you on social media, find out how they can engage more with what you got going on. What's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can go to allthehacks.com and that's the podcast. That's a newsletter. Every other week, I kind of spend, I don't know, write like a 20-minute post about things. I'm either at Hutchins on Twitter or at Chris Hutchins everywhere else. You can reach out to me, DM me. Everything's open. Would love to engage and be helpful in everyone's building your businesses, your wealth, your points balance, hacking your life, whatever it is. So, Or you're on a podcast. Just go listen. Just search for it right here, wherever you are. And uh, you can catch me every Wednesday. Chris Hutchins, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. And if you did, all I ask is that you share it with somebody else who maybe needs to hear this today or that could gain some value from something that was talked about or discussed in today's interview. You just never know one piece of information, a conversation, a tool, a resource can completely transform and change the trajectory of someone's life or their business. So if you get any kind of value or you want to support the show, all we ask is that you help us organically get this in front of more people. Also, for those of you who are really looking to accelerate your wealth building journey and unlock more financial freedom, get more time back and just level up your life, your business, your finances, be sure to head over to therichlifeacademy.com to check out all the amazing products and resources that we offer to our Millionaire Mindcast family, whether that's one-on-one coaching with me, courses from our guests, all kinds of free content, downloads, checklists, upcoming event info on how you can connect with us live, in person, all kinds of great valuable tools. You can get that over at therichlifeacademy.com. Last but not least, I always want to know, who do you guys want to hear me interview next? Let me know. Shoot me a text at 844-447-1555. With that being said, until next time, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your March to a million and beyond. Cheers, my friend.